Are you like me? Do you have a, like a favorite scripture or a favorite passage of scripture that you find you go to over and over again? If you do, it's probably because there are certain passages that over and over you feel like they always speak to right where you are. They speak to your situation. A lot of people go to Philippians 4 because they feel a lot of anxiety. And Philippians 4 talks directly about anxiety and the peace of God. A lot of young people, their favorite passage is Jeremiah 29, 11, because they look out at their life and they think about their future and they go, I don't have a plan or I don't know if my plans are going to come true. And they, they hear the prophet Jeremiah tell God's people, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It's like it's speaking right to them. Well, let me ask you this. If you were an Israelite in the first century, say it's like, I don't know, 30 A.D., what would be your favorite passage? What would be the scriptures that you think an ancient Israelite would go to over and over? What would be there like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ? What would be their version of that? I wonder, I, I would suggest it might be two. They're famous passages in the Old Testament. The ones that I think would speak to right where they are. Think about it. They're oppressed. If you're a first century Jew, you're, you're oppressed, you're under Roman oppression, right? So you got this, this pagan people that is oppressing God's chosen people, and you need promise that this isn't going to be, you know, this isn't going to be forever. You need to know God has not forgotten you. God has not given up on you. I think you would go to Isaiah 40. Let me, let me, I'll put them up here on the screen. I, I think you would go to Isaiah 40. It's a famous prophecy, 700 years earlier, right? So this is 700 B.C., Isaiah writes this to people who are in the same kind of situation. They're exiles. They're in Babylon. And what do we see? He writes, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. I haven't given up on you. I haven't forgotten you. For everybody who feels far, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And here's how you know God is on his way. Out of nowhere, verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So in spite of all this, you see this king is coming, and it's, it's none other than the Lord himself. God is coming. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And not just to a select group of religious people either. We're going global with this. And the glory of the Lord, verse 5 says, shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now that's an ancient prophecy. But I imagine in that first century, I imagine you're hearing that going, man, that sounds pretty good. It's been a lot of silence from God. And we, we, we don't know. Maybe we've fallen too far. Maybe he's given up on us. And so they would go over. They loved it. When the rabbi would, 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 would preach from Isaiah 40. They loved it when, when they would open that scroll and hear comfort, comfort. There's a voice crying. God is coming. And it's not like you've got to build a highway to get to God. God is coming. So prepare the highway. I imagine old, the, the old prophet Isaiah writing that. I mean, what was going through his mind? He writes that. He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's looking out into the future. Maybe he doesn't even know what's going on. I imagine him going home that night. Oh, how was your day, honey? Oh, it was, it was great. What'd you write today? I wrote a really great passage today. What's it about? I'm not sure. I don't know. I think I'm prophesying about a prophet. 
I think I'm prophesying about one who's going to come before the day of the Lord. When God comes, and I'm not even sure what all that means, but when God comes, when he ushers in, it's like there's going to be this voice that cries out of nowhere, that cries out of the wilderness, make everything straight. What do you think that means? I don't know. That's good. I think the other passage, I think Isaiah 40 would be one of your favorites. I think the other one would be, and for good reason, you would go back to kind of like the last thing you guys, the last thing you heard from God. Remember, remember I told you last week, that little page that separates the Old and New Testament, that little, that little, little white page right there, it's, it's, it's deceptive for two reasons. One is it makes it look like there's, there's somehow a difference. That this, is, this is a continuing story. But the other thing is, that represents 400 years of silence. There hasn't been a prophet in Israel. 400 years, no, no new word from the Lord. And so you're, you're, you're wondering, has, has, has God given up on us? Has maybe, is he going to start again with a different people? Like, what, what's going on here? And so you, what's the last thing you remember? What's the last thing he said? Well, you, you go right here. What's the, what's the last thing that was said in the last prophet of the Old Testament, in the last chapter of the last prophet? The last prophet is Malachi. My friends in New York call him Malachi, the Italian prophet. But either way, what's the last thing? What, what's the last chapter of the last prophetic word? Malachi predicts there's coming a great and awesome day of the Lord. Great, awesome as in dreadful, right? It's going to be a, a day of great joy and also a day of great judgment. To the wicked, to the oppressor, oh, but when the Lord comes, when he appears, his, God's Messiah will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. It's going to be a great day, but a great and dreadful day. Look at, look at, the la, look at Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, when that happens, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay, now what do, you, what, do you, what do you do with that? I'll send you Elijah before. So, so, so you've got this voice that's going to come before. You're not really sure what that is. And you've got this Elijah character. And so there's all this rumor spreading that like, like somehow Elijah has to come before. Like Elijah will be like, like you know you go to a show or something and the MC comes on stage. The MC is not the main act. They bring the main act on stage. Jo you know, th this Elijah character, whoever it is, this prophet's going to be like, Y'all get ready, put your hands together, right? Make some noise. He's going to usher in this great and awesome day of the Lord. So there's this rumor. Everybody's trying to figure out, like, well, what was that? who is that? Is Elijah going to be back from the dead? Who's Elijah? Quick refresher. Who's Elijah? You find him way back in 2 Kings. He is a, he's a prophet, and he is known for a couple things. He came out of the wilderness, came kind of out of nowhere, and the big thing about Elijah, he was not afraid to speak truth to power. He spoke fearlessly. He spoke powerfully. He didn't care that, the, that the, the religious people and everything, they got offended, whatever. He didn't care. He, was, he lived simply. In fact, in 2 Kings 1, they actually describe how he was dressed because he lived very simply. He didn't live in a bunch of finery and royal robes. No, just the opposite. And he, he bumped in and, and gave a prophecy to some people who returned to the king, and they're trying to figure out who he is. And the king asks, well, he said to him, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And of all the ways they could have described him, they described what he wore. They answered him, well, uh, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. In other words, a camel hair, not like, not like, like a camel hair blazer or something. That's like nice, fine. This is like the rough, you know, the cheapest thing you could, you could wear. And, uh, and, and a leather belt, dressed very simply. And the king knew exactly who it was. That's Elijah, the Tishbite. Yeah. So you're looking for this voice that's crying out. You're looking for this Elijah character. 
you're trying to figure out who this is, and you've been looking for him for 400 years. So then imagine how momentous it is in Matthew chapter 3. Will you turn there in your Bible? Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Imagine then, no wonder, when this guy named John the Baptizer or John the Baptist, it's funny, he was really a preacher, he was a prophet, but because he also baptized, instead of John the prophet, they went with John the Baptist, but it certainly could have been either way. Imagine then the buzz that's created when this guy shows up. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you can imagine the buzz. Wait, what are you saying? Are you saying there's a prophet again in Israel? Are you saying that the 400 years of silence is being broken? And you can just imagine how word spreads there in Jerusalem and in Judea and in the surrounding. You know, he's out there in the wilderness. He comes out of nowhere. And so all the buzz starts. Is this really going to happen? I've heard it's going to happen. I heard there's going to be this voice. I heard there's going to be this Elijah. Have you seen what they're doing out there in the county? Could this be it? They said we'd get an olive garden. It's going to happen. Like, we've been waiting 400 years. Like, you know, all this buzz, and, and nobody can figure out what's true and what's fake news. And so every, right, what's happening? Is this it? Is this the prophet? Matthew leaves no doubt. Look at verse 3. Could it be? Matthew says, yes. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. He's saying, John is the voice. He's here. And so you're like, okay, so 700-year-old mystery solved. Who's this mysterious voice that Isaiah sees? It's John the Baptist. But what about this Elijah thing? Now, Matthew knows. Remember, Matthew's a Jew. He knows what his fellow Israelites are expecting. He knows they're also expecting this Elijah character. And again, some people literally thought Elijah would, like, reappear. And so Matthew knows full well that expectation's out there. So look how he does verse 4. He mentions John the Baptist's clothing as if to ask, ring any bells? Now John <clears throat> wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. It's gross. It's kosher, but it's gross. Guy comes out of the wilderness wearing the exact same clothes, preaching fearlessly. There's no doubt who this is. And Matthew, remembers trying to convince fellow Israelites about what's going on here. And so he signals clearly, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Back in 2 Kings, we know him just by his clothes. We know this is that Elijah character. Now, just to leave no doubt, Jesus later, just for the record, in Matthew 11, Jesus uh, 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 leaves no doubt that this is who that is. I'll show you the verse. In Matthew eleven thirteen. 13, he starts talking about John the Baptist, and he says, you know, that among those born of women, there, there's none greater than John. It gives him this really high praise, and then he says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. In other words, th this prophecy about Elijah, symbolically, that role had to be fulfilled. And it's, it's JTB. It's John the Baptist who fulfilled that role of the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, not everybody, maybe not everybody will get this. But those with ears to hear, let him hear. So there you have it. God's not done with his people. Apparently, it's not too late for him. He sent them this prophet, this voice, John the Baptist, this Elijah-type prophecy. And when the prophet speaks, we had better listen. And his message could not be simpler. Look at verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
That's it. His whole message could be summed up in one word. Repent. That is the message today. That's what our sermon is. That's what we have right here. Repent. If you're a note taker, the note is repent. If you're not a note taker, try to remember, <laughs> repent. Right? And for those of you, I will say, for those of you who are like, but I'm, but I'm really a note taker. Like, can you give me some outline? Here you go. Here you go. Repentance. What is it? What is it not? And what about you? There you go. It's all about repentance. But this will guide us through the remainder of this text. Let's ask these three questions. What is repentance? What is it not? If the whole message is about repent, we got to get this right. What is repentance? What is it not? Because there's some false, there's some counterfeit repentance out there. And then what about you? Just like last week, I tried to, I tried to save the application for the end in the hopes that everybody would still be with me by the time we got to the end. I'm going to take that same risk today, that the application comes at the end. What about you? This is not just a message for people 2,000 years ago. It's for you and me. So what about us? Repentance. Let's get to it. What is repentance? Repentance is more than just changing your mind, though it does involve changing your mind. It is a turning, right? You're going in one direction. It is turning from sin, turning toward God. The Old Testament prophets used a similar word. Their favorite word wasn't repent. Their favorite word was return. Return, O Israel. Return to God. And the why, don't miss this, the why John gives helps explain the what. Repent, why? What does he say in verse 2? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the first of 32 times Matthew's going to use the phrase kingdom of heaven. Just for the record, kingdom of heaven, the other gospel writers use kingdom of God. They mean the same thing. Matthew probably preferred kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God to respect the piety of the Jews who were not comfortable. They, they wouldn't utter the word God. They wouldn't write it. And so he says kingdom of heaven as sort of shorthand when, when, when what he's saying is kingdom of God. It means the exact same thing. In other words, the availability is here. The time to repent is now. There, you, can't just, you can't just turn from something into you know, nothing. You always turn from something into something else or someone else. Here, the availability of the kingdom means you can turn from sin and selfishness and evil and the kingdom of darkness. You can turn to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of God. He's here. It's available. The kingdom of heaven is not a geopolitical, it's not a geographic designation. It's not a place. The kingdom of heaven is everywhere that comes under the rule of God the king. So right now, every heart that submits to God as king is part of the kingdom of heaven. And that's why we're supposed to pray, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What do we pray? Let your kingdom come. You know how your will gets done right now in heaven? Whatever you say happens. There's no evil. It's all gone. Let your will be done on earth like it gets done in heaven every day. Let that start happening more and more so as more places come under the justice of God and the loving reign and rule of God as evil gets banished out. His kingdom expands as every sinner, every time a sinner places their faith and trust in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has grown. See? And we're praying for more and more of that to happen. It's the availability that makes repentance possible. Repent because of the cataclysmic new reality that the king is here. All that stuff about Isaiah, he's coming. So the time to repent is now. I try to think of an illustration. It's not perfect, but maybe this will help. Imagine you're in World War II and you're in France. The Nazis invade and <clears throat> you decide to join the Nazi army. You join the Nazi cause. So you're in the Nazi army, you're in Hitler's army, 
And then something happens uh, called D-Day. Up north, you're hearing about this thing that happened at Normandy where the Allied forces have taken the beach there, Omaha Beach, and they've they've got a beachhead, and there's about to be an invasion there uh, into Europe, into France. And so uh, something happens. Because of this cataclysmic new reality, you decide there's a repentance. You You are tired of being... You are aware of the evil of the Nazi cause. You don't want to be a part of that anymore. Repentance is more than saying, huh, I guess I changed teams. You know, I'm, oh well, I guess I was wrong. Like in your mind being like, I've been wrong. I should probably support the allies. It's more than that. Repentance then would not just be sort of lip service. It wouldn't just be up here in your head saying, oh, okay, well, I guess I was wrong. I changed my mind. No, Repentance would mean you go to the allied troops, you lay down your arms and surrender, and with unconditional surrender, you come clean about what you've done, and you say, I, I, I hereby pledge a new allegiance. I don't want to be part of that anymore. I, don't, I certainly don't want to be there when this thing ends because I can see the victory that's going to happen, and so with, without condition, I, I, unconditional surrender. You can make me a prisoner of war. You can make me a spy. You can make... You, you can make me a part of your army. I'll listen to your army. I come with no conditions. That is repentance, a changing of allegiances because of the reality that the kingdom is here. So here's my stab at a definition if you want to take a photo of this or what, if this is helpful to you. Repentance is coming clean. Drop the mask. Stop with the lies. And above all, stop lying to yourself. Stop saying, I'm okay, I'm okay. If you know you're not okay, repentance is a coming clean. An unconditional surrender to God in light of the availability of God's kingdom. See, that's the best part of this. Like, God's kingdom is available to you today. You don't have to keep up appearances. You don't have to keep lying. This is good news. Repentance means that, like, like, like God allows U-turns. <laughs> you can go this new direction. You don't have to wallow in self-pity or get bogged down in woulda, shoulda, coulda and spend the rest of your life beating yourself up in condemnation. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. And y'all, they did. Like when John preached this, like they did. Look at verse five, not just one or two. Then Jerusalem, the whole city, and all Judea, that's the whole region, and all the region about the Jordan, that's the region even bigger than Judea. We're going out to him. This, was, this wasn't just one or two folks. This was revival. And what were they doing? And they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. You see that? They were coming clean. Didn't Jesus say, the truth will set you free? They're living in the truth. They're confessing sin. Repentance has this confession element to it. Confession is agreeing with God on a matter. It's saying, God, you know what? When your conscience, right, when your conscience fires, you, you realize it, it's sharp and it's, it's stabbing at you. You realize things are not okay. I, I, I'm wrong. You're right. I have sinned. I need to come clean. And how do they signal? How do they signify this, this repentance, this coming clean with God? They signal it by going through the waters of baptism. Now, I, 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 I want to make a point about this, but I want to come back to it later, so I'm just going to super brief make a point about this and then move on. Baptism was a thing in Judaism in 30 AD. But this was shocking. Here's why it was shocking. Shocking for two reasons. One, you, you, you ritually washed yourself. You plunged into the water and washed yourself. 
Uh, but, and so this, you have someone baptizing you. You can't administer it yourself. The, the, the second thing that was shocking, and what was most shocking is, it was a thing, but baptism was never practiced by a Jew. It was practiced by a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism. That's what made this shocking. Yeah, in other words, when a Gentile who's not born ethnically Jewish, they didn't come under the covenant of circumcision and, and you know, hey, you know, we have Abraham as our father. And all, but, but I want to be written into this story. Fine, but one of the things you would do is this baptismal rite. What's shocking is here you have Jews who are going through the thing that only Gentile converts would go through. You talk about humbling yourself. You talk about getting right with the Lord. They're confessing as if to say, we're not banking on any sort of spiritual pedigree. We need that connection with God. It's us. And they repented and went through the waters of baptism. So we'll come back to that. Just, just file that away. But for now, let's move on. Repentance then, coming clean. It's coming clean. And if there's somebody who hears this today or you're watching this online, you need to come clean. An unconditional surrender to God. Why? Because the kingdom's here in light of the availability of God's kingdom. Now, that's what repentance is. What is it not? We gotta, here's sort of a how not to repent is verse 7. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Ugh. Now we're going to talk a lot about Pharisees and Sadducees in the coming days in this series on Matthew. Very rarely do we see them together. Because here's what you need to know about Pharisees and Sadducees. Religious political parties, but uh, they hated each other. Nothing unites, it seems, like a common enemy. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees come, notice, to his baptism. They're not coming for baptism. They're coming to check everything out. And John, John said to them, you, <laughs> John doesn't care. John said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, you, you know, you never want a prophet at your dinner party. Uh, right? I mean, he, he doesn't care. A prophet's gonna, the, the prophet is going to tell the truth, and of course it's going to make people uncomfortable. I would say it this way. Uh, the prophet is not ever what you want to hear. It's what you need to hear. If you're like me, uh, you've been blessed by Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the scriptures called The Message. If you don't take advantage of this, you should. It's, it's free on most platforms. You can get a copy. But uh, I love his paraphrase of this, this particular passage, verse 7. Let me read it to you. When John realized that a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees were showing up for a baptismal experience because it was becoming the popular thing to do, he exploded. Brood of snakes. What do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? You think a little water on your snake skin is going to make any difference? It's your life that must change, not your skin. He's telling the truth. He's saying repentance is not lip service. And he's right. He's right. Don't stay in denial. John the Baptist wasn't being mean. He was telling the truth. Now, what does it mean? When I say, when I say repentance is not just lip service, but true repentance, we got some help from an old preacher, an old Baptist, Charles Spurgeon says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we've committed, and a resolution to forsake it. Discovery of the evil of sin, mourning that we've committed, resolution to forsake it. So simple. 
Think about it. Before you become a Christian, you're floating in the stream of the world's culture. And, and, and there's a lot of things that now you realize are sin. You didn't, even, you didn't even think of them as sinful. And to use Spurgeon's word, you might have thought of them as a little sinful. It's a bad habit. It's unsavory. I know I probably shouldn't do it. But you never thought of it as evil. Then what happens is you come under, and, and, and preachers use this term, and Christians use this term, and it makes total sense. You come under conviction. It's like your conscience wakes up, and suddenly you've been going in this, and you're like, wait a minute. This is evil. What I'm doing is wrong, and a mourning that we've committed it. It's like, not only am I under conviction that what I'm doing is wrong, it's evil. I've got to stop lying. I've got to stop being in denial. It's wrong, but also, I'm sorry, and not just like, you know, not just, I'm sorry I got caught, but I'm grieved over this. I'm not just sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I broke God's heart. It's personal, and you realize sin is evil, and it's a, it's a rebellion against a God who's done nothing but love me and care for me and create me, and here I have, I've been in rebellion, and I'm, I'm sick over that. I don't want that. That's, that's called, and people say, coming under conviction. That's probably a pretty good way to put it. And then a resolution to forsake it, not just... Not just to say, oh well, I guess I'll just be sick over it. But to say, no, cut this out of my life. And there's a grief there sometimes. I've, I've lived with this sin for so long. I've loved this sin. I've, I've, I've held on to this addiction. These lies have been my comfort. But to say, I forsake them. That's not easy. Truth. David Foster Wallace says, yeah, the, the truth will set you free, but not till it has its way with you. Telling the truth is hard. Coming clean is hard. That's a mark of true repentance. Now, I'd like to insert this right here. A, a, a pastoral word, if I may. There are people in every congregation that need to hear this. They're unrepentant. Their hearts are hard. And they need to hear this word of John the Baptist. Like the Pharisees and Sadducees, they need to hear that hard word. The problem is, in every congregation, there are also those on the other end of the pendulum who are not hard-hearted. They are so tender they tend to err the other way. They hear something like this, they read something like John the Baptist, and they begin sweating, and they think, I love God so much. I want to repent. I read this, and I think, maybe I've never truly repented. Maybe I've, maybe I've never repented. When I see that, I go, I, I, want, I want to be a repentant person. I don't want to be against God. I love God. I, would do, I don't want to break his heart. What if I've never truly repented? And these people often tend to doubt their salvation. They doubt their standing with God. They don't have any assurance of salvation. It tears them up. It breaks my heart to see them because they're on this end. They're so tender. Let me say this word to you. I, ho I hope it's encouraging. The first thing I would say is the fact that you are concerned that you haven't repented enough is pretty good evidence to me that you've repented. Because people who haven't repented don't care whether they've repented or not. They don't care. They're happy to be in rebellion against God. You, you're worried you haven't repented enough. Why? Because you love God. You want to be with God. That, that, in a way, that, that, that's, that's evidence to me that, you, that you're on the right track there with that. I also hear this a lot. Well, but when I first came to faith, I was so young. I didn't know enough. I didn't, I didn't, what, when I, come on, you got saved. You know, some of you, I, you know, you're like me. I got saved when I was nine or ten years old. What did I know about sin? Pfft, look back, I think now, I got real problems, you know. What did I know about myself? What did I know about God? Well, of course you're going to know more. Of course. And to you, I would offer, and I hope it helps, this quote from J.I. Packer. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself 
to as much of you as you know of your God. Of course, all three of those things are going to grow. So as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. In other words, think of repentance as a posture. As you look back, it doesn't mean that, that, you're, that you're, you're, you're coming to faith in Christ was somehow, well, I didn't know enough, or I, I didn't. Well, you, you, as much as you knew of your sin then, and as much as you knew of yourself, and as much as you knew of your God, you gave it over. Of course you know more about yourself now. Of course you've grown. I hope you've grown in self-awareness. I hope you've grown to know more of God. And of course you're going to expose, as more of God's light shines, you're going to see more of sin in your own life. So you, your posture of repentance grows. Let me give you an example. Some of you can say, this is your story, some of you can say, Lord, when you saved me, I was, at, I was at Centrifuge Camp, and I was a teenager, whatever your story is, and, and I, I just felt, felt you, you called me. And I, I, When you saved me, I was so grateful to you because I knew you saved me from X, Y, and Z. But now that I'm an adult, I realize you saved me from A, B, C, D, E. <laughs> I've got a whole list of things I realize now you saved. I had no idea. So I was giving you this much glory. Now I want to give you even more glory. And 10 years from now, I'm going to look back and realize, oh, man, come on, we've all done stuff. We look back, it was so cringy, right? That can't just be dads. That's everybody, right? So now we look back, and we look back on our sin, we go, I know so much more of it. How much more glory do I want to give God for saving me? So it's not just lip service, and I don't want, I don't want to drive the point so hard that people who are tender of conscience might think they've never truly repented. I, I'm not trying to, to, to do that. I am saying to anyone who would say, look, I, you know, I, cha- I changed my mind. Yeah, me and God are good. I don't, I, don't really, I don't really live for him. I don't really have any concern about that, but I'm sure we'll be okay. I'm saying, no, pay attention. Repentance is not lip service. That's Pharisees and Sadducees had that. And it's not, how do I say this? It's not... You can't pull rank when it comes to God. You can't, say, you can't say you're above the need for repentance. Let me just put it that way. That would be a real danger sign. That's the other thing the Pharisees and Sadducees did. John anticipates their objection. In fact, they probably, they might have even said it. Look at verse 9. There's no way around repentance. Do And do not presume. Ah, presumption, there it is. Do not presume to say to yourselves, <laughs> we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What's he saying? The Pharisees and Sadducees were saying, look at all these. Look at all these fools going to the water to be baptized, confessing and repentance. There's no need for that. Why? We're children of Abraham. We're under his covenant. There's no need for a personal connection with God because obviously we're on a church roll somewhere. We're on the synagogue roll. We're children of Abraham. Mm, you hear the presumption there? Uh, the old-time preachers uh, said it this way. You may have to think about this, but if you think about it long enough, you'll realize it's true. The old-time preachers used to say, God has no grandchildren. You can't say, I'm okay with God, because my mama and my daddy, they had a real close relationship with God. So I guess I'm good, because my legacy is my mom and dad had it. My mom and dad had God as their father, so I guess I'm good. God has no grandchildren. He has a lot of children, and he invites you to be his child. But you need a personal connection with God as your father. You don't get a proxy connection through somebody else. And it's presumption to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm okay. 
What, what were the Pharisees and Sadducees doing? They're saying, look, we're fine. T- take the scriptures. God made a promise to be faithful to the descendants of Abraham. So to the children of Abraham, God will be faithful. If he wipes out all the children of Abraham, John the Baptist, if what you're saying is true, if he wipes out all the children of Abraham, then to whom will he show faithfulness? John the Baptist shoots back. He can make a child of Abraham out of stone right there if he needs to. That's who. Next question. There's a little play on words here in Aramaic, the word for children and the word for stones, right? If, if he, you know, he can make a child of Abraham out of the stones. The word for children in Aramaic is um, Benaya, and the word for stone is Abnaya. So you can hear him, John the Baptist, like, oh, Benaya, Abnaya. <laughs> right? He's being a little sarcastic here. Like God, like, God, like, like God can't do what he wants in this matter. Like you're going to presume on the mercy of God. The modern day application, of course, couldn't be clearer. What makes you okay with God? How would you fill in this blank? I'm okay with God because blank. Let me tell you something. If in that blank goes anything except the grace of God, poured out on Jesus, the, the, the mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm okay with God because Jesus rescued me. Those are all, you're all saying the same thing, yes. But if you put on there, I'm okay with God because I'm, I'm a church member. I, I'm okay with God because I'm on, a, I'm on a, a roll somewhere. I'm okay with God because my parents, I don't know, I was raised Christian. Y'all, that's making the mistake the Pharisees and Sadducees were making. God has no grandchildren. So if anything goes in that blank other than he rescued me by his grace, you need a personal relationship with God. And that brings us to the final point. What about you? I told you I'd save the application for the end. And here we are. What about you? The first application I would want to say is if you are hearing this today, if you're hearing my words, or maybe you're watching this on, on a video someday, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you would say, I've been, I've been walking in this and suddenly... Uh, as you're explaining it, I realize I have never been saved or I don't know that I need to be saved. The message for you could not be clearer. Repent and place your faith and trust in Jesus. Be saved today. Come to him. He loves you. you say, I'm a sinner. Well, good. That's what God saves. He saves sinners. I'm too much. I'm too far gone. You don't, you don't understand me. Being a sinner is not a disqualification from following Jesus. It's a prerequisite what he saves is sinners. So you come and be saved today. The Bible perfectly explains that guilt and that shame you feel because the Bible says God made you and he loves you. And so when you feel guilt and shame and separation from God, the Bible says, yeah, that's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. And when you could not make your way back to God, God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, and he lived a perfect life, and he stretched out his arms on that old Roman cross. They drove nails in his hands, nails in his feet. You, you might say it like this. If this is you, and this is Jesus, and that's your life, <laughs> have you ever given your life to Jesus? Have you ever repented, confessing your sins, been saved by Jesus? That would be the clearest application I can't stress the urgency enough. Don't Listen, this isn't something you, you play around with. Don't wait another day. If you need to be saved, be saved today. Look at verse 10. John says, even now, look at the urgency. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What does he mean the ax is laid to the root of the tree? Listen, what, what happens? If somebody's chopping down a tree, what do they do? They line up that first shot. So they lay the ax right there, which means what's about to happen next? At any minute, 
It's coming down. Like, you, you can't delay and to be forever repent and be saved or be forever cut off from the nourishment, the life-giving grace of God. Like, what? don't delay. So, if you say, okay, how do I do it? How, how do I turn? What do I do? Then that's good. If you're asking that question, I need to be saved. What do I do? Um, that's good. That means the prophet John has your attention. And John, it, I don't see how you can preach this, certainly how you can read through this and not come under some kind of conviction. Uh, the, old, the old prophet John the Baptist still speaks. He, he's like a, John is like the perfect diagnostician. He's not the, he's not the, the, the surgeon. Uh, in other words, like John is the guy who can read the CAT scan. John is the guy who cuts through all the nonsense and is like, you're living a lie. You need to come clean today. Don't wait. Acts is coming. Everything else is fire. Any questions? He, he, he's got no time for nonsense. John's the guy who reads the CAT scan and goes, yep, I can see it. There it is. That's the cancer. That's what's going to kill you. Bye. <laughs> you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, who can operate? Who can get it out? John says, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about the one who is to come. I baptize you with water for repentance. Okay, My job is to show you your sin. But he who is coming after me, he can actually deal with your sin. He who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. There's a little bit of a cultural reference there. When a rabbi took on a disciple, the disciple was basically the rabbi's, for all practical purposes, slave, would, would do anything except the one thing beneath the disciple would be to uh, wash the, uh, clean the sandals, carry the sandals. That would be uh, only for the most menial uh, uh, slave. And what John the Baptist is saying here is, I'm not even worthy to be the slave of the disciple of this guy. He, completely different category. Why? Because I can just, I can show you the sin, I can, I can call out from God, I can prophesy, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Don't get confused about this, baptized with the Holy Spirit, it means he can save you. Think about it, what John's doing, he's plunging people in the Jordan River. So he's saying, I can give you this symbolic cleansing, okay, I can do that. But what would it be like to be plunged, not into the Jordan River, what would it be like to be plunged into God himself? What would it be like to be plunged into the life of God? Only Jesus can do that. And not only baptized with the Holy Spirit, but with fire. Fire is a symbol in the New Testament for purifying. And so he's not only going to save you, justify you, he's also going to sanctify you. He's going to put you through the sanctifying fire of sanctification, of making you what you ought to be. And only Jesus can do that. And, he, and listen, he will not let up. He will not let up. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is an incredible image. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a farmer. I never have been, but if I understand the process here, all wheat grows up with chaff on it. And so the goal is you can't, you can't harvest it together. You, you, the, the wheat's the good stuff. That's the profit. That's what you want. That's what you can eat. The, the chaff is the, the husk. That just, it's worthless. And so you got to thresh it somehow. you got to grind it, whether you use an oxen or nowadays, I'm told, a combine uh, basically does the same thing. But either way, at some point, once it's threshed, once it's separated, it's still there together. So a winnowing fork would be a way of kind of getting all of it on your fork and then throwing it up in the air. And as it's thrown up in the air, the wind would carry off the chaff 
and the heavy wheat kernels would fall down. Eventually, you do that enough, and you pull the wheat in for the harvest, and the chaff is left over here. What do you do with that? It's worthless. Nothing to do with it. You burn it. And I'm, I'm told a combine, a modern combine, does the same thing. There's, there's a fan or something in that machine that blows the chaff up and gets it out so that the, heavy, the weight of the wheat uh, uh, is, is what's left. John the Baptist is saying, it's unquenchable fire. That's what's going to happen. Uh, you know, there is a separation. I know some people would interpret this and say, see, there you go. Uh, God takes the wheat, uh, the saved, into his barn, and those who are not saved are the chaff, and they're out there, and, and they're burning forever uh, with unquenchable fire. I can't deny there is an eternal separation, but I'm not sure that's the, exactly the way you get there. Um, don't forget, every wheat has chaff on it, right? And that's what wheat is. So wheat grows up, and it's got this chaff on it. I think what he's saying here is the kingdom of heaven is here. His winnowing fork is in his hand. God is willing, I don't, I don't know if this is the right English, God is willing to de-chaff you. Chaff is the sin in your life. He's willing to separate that right now. But if you say, I'm sorry, I, I, Lord, I, repent. Let him clean that chaff off. Let him dust it off. It's not going to stop. It's unquenchable fire. So there's going to be fire for it. But you say, but, but I love my chaff. I love my sin. I, I love that. that that's what... That, that anti-God, that rebellious God, that's what hell is. I know, but, but is there, Jesus, is there, any way you can, is there any way you can take me to heaven and let me bring a little bit of hell with me? No. No, there's not, there's not a square inch. Listen, his glory is going to fill the entire heavens and earth. So if you're, in the end, C.S. Lewis says it this way, in the end there's only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and let him thresh and burn off every bit of chaff in your life. Or those who demand to hold on to that chaff, who refuse to repent, what other option is there? Ultimately, Lewis says, those to say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God eternally has to say, okay, thy will be done. If his glory is going to fill every square inch of new heaven, new earth, there has to be, he's not going to allow any bit of hell into his heaven, so there has to be hell burning with unquenchable fire to those who will continually refuse to repent. There's, there, I don't see any other option. God is not being capricious. He's, he's, he's dealing with chaff. So, repent. I mean, that, that's, that's the word. That's the application. And once you repent, I would say there is an appropriate application here um, for uh, this uh, repent, and I might say repent and be baptized. If you are a born-again child of God, you may have been walking with the Lord for years, you may have been walking with the Lord for a week, but right now your conscience is firing. You've not gone through the waters of baptism. You need to do that. And you don't need to do it because I convinced you. You don't need to do it because a preacher. You need to do it because your conscience has convicted you and you see it in the Word of God right here. And as a step of faith and obedience. Because it doesn't have anything to do with me. You need to know that about me. I will love you and respect you whatever you decide. You understand that? That's not, that's not what's up for debate. You have my love and respect. Don't walk in disobedience. Why would you not want to identify with your Lord and Savior? Listen, if you are a Christian and you have never gone through baptism by immersion, I, 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 I know, 
I know that, that some traditions call sprinkling and, 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 and what happens to infants, they call that baptism. A Baptist would say that's a bit of a misnomer and it causes confusion because that was super meaningful for your parents. That was super meaningful for other people. But you might not have even remembered. Go back to what I said. The, the, the Jews in 30 AD, they already had the covenant of circumcision. So there's a sense in which, but wait, we're already part of the family of God. This was a personal act as they're repenting, confessing their sins, then they go through the waters of baptism. I would encourage you to do that. And don't wait. If that's something you need to do, don't wait. Call, call the church. I'm thinking the water's probably still warm over there. Like, just let me know. Uh, I mean that. Don't wait. Uh, be baptized. Don't let anything keep you from identifying with your Lord and Savior in this way. The urgency of it. He loves you. Brandon's going to come and lead us in a time of response. I, I would just say um, re repent, be baptized. And then to those of you who are believers, listen, what did John the Baptist say? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear the fruit in keeping with repentance. You can't make fruit happen, <laughs> right? All you can do is stay in that posture of, re of repentance. Stay humble, right? And if you will do that, if you will say, God, I'm just going to be in a posture of repentance. I'm not going to depend on my own righteousness. I'm not going to depend on what I can do. I am just going to, as best I can, I'm just going to prepare the way of the Lord. Like John the Baptist said, I, I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to be honest before you. I'm going to be honest before other people. I tend to be a person who covers things up and who lies. I'm going to stop that. I, I, I'm going to let you take all the chaff. So I'm just going to be in this posture, Lord, of repentance, a repentant posture, humble before you. And you know what will start to happen in your life? It's, it's incredible. As you stay grounded in Jesus, you say, I'm, listen, all you need to know about me is I'm a forgiven sinner. So let me talk to you about Jesus. I love it. Even John the Baptist, he doesn't say, I'm so-and-so. I'm just a voice. I'm a voice, man. What Me, I don't matter. You need to listen to the one who's speaking to you. It's God, right? So you just say, God, this is my life's all for your glory. It's about you. I'm in a posture of repentance. And here's what happens. You can't force it. You can't make it happen. It comes like fruit. As you stay abiding in Christ, nourished in a posture that is as honest as you can be before the Lord and before other people, watch this. You start telling the truth, watch what happens. Fruit. Love. And over here, joy. And over here, peace. And look, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It just happens like fruit of the Spirit. As the Holy Spirit works in you, you'll be a person who bears fruit, able to help nourish a world that desperately needs some good news. <sighs> John the Baptist is, I mean, this sermon was for me. So if you say, well, you really stepped on my toes. Oh, I stepped on my own toes. But after you get done with John the Baptist, you go, man, we, whew, we are ready for Jesus. He's telling the truth. He's saying, get rid of all the nonsense. And so, thank goodness, the next verse after that says, then Jesus came. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Jesus came. He's come to save. Let's pray. God, as best we know how, I pray for repentant hearts this morning. Hearts that can come clean, tell the truth, be before you. God, thank you that we can trust your gospel, good news. That you have come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
Lord, I thank you that the application for John the Baptist 2,000 years ago is still the application today. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. There will come a day when this expires, but right now it is at hand and the time is now. And so anyone who needs to be saved, let it happen today, Lord, for your glory. Anyone who needs to be baptized, give them that courage, that step of faith. I can't imagine the humility of those ancient Jews walking out to that Jordan River, but they were willing to do anything if it meant being obedient to you. I pray for that same humility and obedience for your people today. And I pray for God's people this week to bear the fruit in keeping with repentance. Thank you, God. Grant us this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet for our invitation?